Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Detroit-based writer Jack Chang. Jack's debut middle-grade novel, See You in the Cosmos, about a precocious kid named Alex, his dog named Carl Sagan, and the iPod full of communications that he hopes to launch into space, was released in February by Dial Books for Young Readers and Puffin. Jack self-published his first novel, These Days, in 2013. Jack is a self-taught writer who started his career in advertising and graphic design. What ties all of these jobs together is Jack's curiosity. Like his main character, Alex, Jack wants to absorb and share information about the world and the people around him. We talk about editing our own narratives, presenting complex issues to kids, and how he raised $24,000 on Kickstarter to publish his first book. I don't want to shy away from these complex topics, but in order to actually present them from that kid perspective, it really requires an even deeper understanding of them. When in the process of writing See You in the Cosmos, did you realize you were writing a middle grade book or a book for kids? Yeah, it actually wasn't until I sent the a draft of the manuscript to my agent, uh, Jessica Craig, um, that yeah, that she she read it and she's like, "Oh, we need to like we need to try to submit this as a young adult novel." Um, yeah, I guess that's really where um, where I kind of realized because like you know I didn't have this awareness of I didn't even know that middle grade was a category. Um, YA was on my radar, but you know my main character is 11 years old. Um, and when I was writing those first drafts, it was more just like me trying to uh, tell a story about him and about the other characters. And and I think also just like you know, at least I know like when I write, like I'm very sensitive to like voice and dialogue. And so the whole idea of like trying to get in the head of an 11-year-old and trying to sound authentic and trying to sound like it's coming from that kid perspective is, like, very natural. It's like, of course, that's what what I would, you know, what I would try to do when I'm writing about those characters. So, yeah, so I I think, yeah, it it sort of happened very naturally that it, you know, I'd started writing um, from that kid perspective. Uh, That's not to say there weren't, like, more adult scenarios and sort of situations in the book. Um, But even from the very beginning, I think I was very mindful of like, just trying to, you know, trying to embody that kid perspective. And we had talked a while back when you were still writing uh, the first drafts of it about that balance of making Alex a really smart kid, but not so kind of, precociously intelligent or like too sophisticated, you know, sometimes narratives like that are driven by these kind of like unrealistically intelligent kids. How did you manage that? For me, it was always like, at least like my experience of childhood was that there was this combination of both naivety and bravado. Um, Like for instance, like when I was, in fourth and fifth grade, um, I was in little league and I'd have my dad like, you know, play catch with me to practice. And, um, and I played right field. So, uh, when we were playing catch, I'd have them throw these like really high, like pop flies essentially. So I could like run and dive and catch them because like, you know, I imagined myself making that play in the game. Um, so, so I think, yeah, there's definitely that, like that combination of, 
yeah, it, uh, I, I think like, yeah, as a, as a kid myself, you know, I like looking back, there's a ton of stuff that I didn't realize was going on. Um, but I sort of like had this sense of, oh, you know, I got it. Like I can do this. I, I do think that sometimes when we read characters in books that seem like, like too precocious of a kid, um, I think sometimes what happens is that it's actually not, it's, it's like, it's more the author trying to use the kid and the kid voice to prove a point and to sort of convey something that they, you know, they know now as adults that they didn't know as kids. Um, whereas, like, that's just not generally the way that I approach uh, writing fiction or, or that, like, you know, when I'm in it, I'm just, like, sort of carried along by this, like, fictional dream. and. I have less control over, like, I, I feel like I, I have less control over, like, the story and what the characters do. And my, my biggest concern is, is, I think, just trying to make them feel and sound genuine. Was he what came to you first with the book, or was it the premise? Yeah, it, it kind of, uh, it kind of both happened together. Um, I was... I was back home in Michigan um, at my parents' house uh, in the suburbs for Thanksgiving, and I was li- living in New York at the time. And um, my younger brother, he had a, a copy of uh, Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot, on his shelf. And so I pulled it from the shelf and I looked at it, and I actually remember this episode of Radiolab, um, where it had, uh, that had Ant- uh, Andrewian, who's Sagan's widow, um, talk about how the two of them worked to. How, how the two of them fell in love as they worked to collect sounds for the Voyager Golden Record. And it was kind of this, like, you know, like, like when I, when I saw the book on my brother's shelf, I remember that. And I went to bed that night and the next morning, the idea was just like there. And like, I very like hastily like typed a note on my, uh, on my phone about it. And I looked at it the next day and it was still good. And I think from the very very beginning, it was sort of this like very enthusiastic and in some ways naive, you know, uh, 11 or 12 year old boy trying to like launch his rocket into space. And so, so yeah, I think those, those two things like came together really quickly and I like pretty immediately had the, the voice of the character. Have you thought about why a young character might have so fascinated you at that point in your life? I I haven't thought about that. I'm not really sure. Um, like I, I mentioned earlier that I, you know, I mentioned this idea of like the fictional dream, and it, it's almost it feels very dream dreamlike to me when I'm writing fiction. It, it, it's it feels like this like lucid dreaming state where I don't have like full control over what happens, but I have a little bit of direction over um, the dream and. As I'm going through it, um, you know, these characters will just appear and these situations and conversations will just appear. And I think that like after I take a couple passes, it's like then I go back and I sort of like interpret and like psychoanalyze and try to figure out what everything means. But yeah, but that's a really interesting question. Um, I know that there are like definitely like looking back on my writing and sort of on other like stories that I've like sketched out or started, they're definitely like recurring characters. 
And it makes me wonder, like, why, you know, why does this character, this kind of person keep showing up in my life? Is that the same exact character or sort of archetypes keep coming up? There are certain archetypes. Um, there's sort of this, like, I don't think it's quite there in, like, See You in the Cosmos, but I know that there's sort of this, like, loudmouth, like, salesman type character that, like, keeps popping up in just various, like, short stories I've sketched out. Um, and I think, like, yeah. I think it's because it I think that might partly be because that like normally um you know like I'm I would consider myself more introverted, uh more introverted and um but then like at the same time when I'm like with friends and when I'm with people, you know, I know well I can be like very loudmouth and very opinionated and and I think there's something about like the um that like there's uh there's sort of like a a fixed amount of like loudness and noise that like when I don't make it in my own life it sort of comes out in these characters um it's like uh like i i I actually remember that um uh in in this apartment where I used to live um I had these upstairs neighbors that would uh would sometimes like get into these like really loud fights. Um and I was, you know, I work from home, I'm home during the day, so I don't I don't think like they they knew that, you know, anyone was in the building. Um but then like they they kept getting into these fights and then like they got a puppy. And uh and then like the the fight stopped. But then there was just this puppy running around upstairs and it was like the same amount of noise, but it just like, it's sort I think they just needed like something external to like embody that. It's just like energy transference. Yeah. It's just energy transference. And I, I think that like that works, um, that works similarly in like, in like, you know, personal relationships and even like, like families too, that sort of, you know, like uh, this one friend of mine, his uh, his his wife is really into wine, and he's like, because of that, like I can I can't learn anything about wine, no matter how hard I try, because like she's like sort of taking, you know, she she she's like holding all that wine knowledge and all that wine energy, um, and so yeah, so I do think there's this tendency for, um, for this like, like for any system to try to find this like equilibrium. Have you discovered through the process of writing and editing and now promoting See in the Cosmos that you are a writer for young adults or young people? Definitely, definitely. And I think uh, it started even before that um, in the process of just like working on the book and editing. Um, there's this thing that like um, the physicist uh, Richard Feynman says about teaching. He He says that like, you know, if you can't explain this like complex physics subject in plain English, then chances are that you yourself don't know it well enough. Um, and I think, like, I've thought, I think it's kind of similar in at least like the kind of fiction that I'm interested in in writing for for kids is that like you know I I don't want to shy away from these like complex top topics, but in order to actually present them from that kid perspective and that kid point of view, it really requires like a deeper, I think an even deeper understanding of them to be able to like think about, you know, how, yeah, how do I convey this like really like nuanced thing? 
um, without like going over the head of a 10 year old. I'm thinking as you say that, I think that's a really interesting point. And it reminded me that in my, in my high school French class, we had to, um, we had to read, you know, our, our, teacher wanted us to read things in French. And so he, he gave us these very early reader books and we were making fun. Cause you know, we were obnoxious teenagers of like how lame the jokes in the books were. And he was like, humor is, is really intelligent, very complicated. And you can't, you don't have a good enough grasp of this language <laughs> to get the jokes that would be funny yeah. to you in English. And it just feels like a similar sort oh, of. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did, did you guys read the little prince? We didn't read The Little Prince. I know that's a real missed opportunity. <laughs> I read Candide like an asshole, but not in French, <laughs> in, in English. Um, so did the process of writing change for you at all? I guess at this point it's editing, uh, rewriting, once it was had been identified to you as a kid's book. I don't think the process of writing changed. Uh, I think there were definitely... On, on on the one hand, I was I, I'd started reading like much more you know more middle grade and even YA. Um, my editors uh, they sent you know some books that were in the category or or had some aspect of it that was similar to See You in the Cosmos um, as like reference. And so th- I think that was in part to to also sh- uh, show me the differences between middle grade and young adult. Um, and sort of the the different kind of perspectives, um, but I, I think the actual writing process itself is just it didn't change at all. Um, it was just yeah, it, it was yeah. I think that was just very like how I normally operate, where you know I'll, I'll get feedback from my editors, and then I'll sort of like digest it and try to understand like you know what they're really getting at. And so even though they might suggest. You know, like, oh, what if we, you know, what if this character did this, or what if we, we did this? It's, I think, part of the role of an author, and part of your responsibility is to try to understand, like, really what that means. Um, and uh, I will say that in the process of working with my editors um, to make it more for squarely for kids, um, there were uh, a number of like aspects of the story where that we we either like cut or we um we just like moved more into the background um there's actually at one point in the book so the the book is told on the iPod that Alex is launching into space and so each chapter is a transcription of a recording that's made on the iPod and so because there's this like device Right, that it, it actually gets passed around in the story that other people can like hold the mic um, for moments in the story. And in earlier drafts, there were actually you know more moments where some of the adult characters were speaking into the microphone, and and so there was this one chapter in particular that this entire chapter that was narrated entirely by one of the adult characters that we ended up cutting, and realized that like even if we cut that, you know. You still, the adult readers still understood exactly what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of that, um, and you know, there some of it is like what you might expect, like finding creative ways not to use like bad words, um, and sort of th- another one is like there's this one character that um, I had 
I had her like just like smoking cigarettes. And I didn't really need to have it. It was sort of just like this random, you know, character trait or thing that she did as I was writing. And and yeah, it was a question of like, yeah, does she need to be smoking cigarettes? Um, especially if she's someone who's like so sympathetic and kind of a role model in the story. Um, then and I found that, yeah, it's like I could replace the cigarettes with her like nervously opening a package of gum and it would still have the same effect. And so so there were there's a lot of like creative problem solving and a lot of yeah how can I show this without you know without making it ex- so explicit right being being realistic about complex issues but not being too uh, yeah, gratuitous yeah. about it and and I think one of the things that like like the a lot of the situations and the scenarios in the book um, they didn't. I, they like hardly changed from draft to draft, but there were there were slight nudges in just like perspective and sort of like little cuts here and there that I think changed the way um, that that like yeah that shifted the point of view just ever so slightly uh, for those scenes, um, and and that was where a lot of the work was I think was was that yeah that being sensitive to that like kid understanding and kid point of view. Let's zoom out a little bit and and kind of keep that thread but in context with uh the your previous works because your first novel you self-published. Um so what now that you've kind of been on both sides of the the independent publishing and the traditional publishing what do you do you feel like you have allegiances? Yeah, I so my first my first book was I did a Kickstarter campaign to kind of fund it myself, and um, and around that time I was doing a lot of like design work. That was my day job, and so I felt like I could like design and typeset the book myself. And some of the money went toward uh, hiring a freelance editor, hiring freelance copy editors and proofreaders, and things like that. Um, but overall, that first book was still just this very solitary experience. I was kind of like the producer on that project um but it was just like yeah um whereas like with this book it's there are like so many people involved um and especially like in the tail end of it which i didn't really like like for my self-published novel i you know i got it into like a couple bookstores and like one or two libraries but that was like a lot of just like me walking in and talking to people and that was something that like you know that I didn't really like that wasn't necessarily fun for me um in writing the first book and or in yeah in the process with the first book and with like you know with a publisher like dial books for young readers or like puffin in the u k you know they have entire teams and like regional sales reps and a whole like you know dozens of people that are involved in just that aspect of of book like book publishing and book selling. And um and I, I will say that after having gone through both experiences, the way I've come to think about them um is not as like it is more more as that they're just like two different systems. And it's not that like, you know, self-publishing or like independent publishing uh, independently independently publishing a book yourself is like necessarily more pure than like 
you know, going through a publisher. I think they're just these two alternate alternate systems, and it's. I, I feel that I'm personally like more compatible with the latter, more compatible with like, uh, being able to just focus on my writing and have like a little bit of input into the other aspects of it. Um, yeah, I, I think that just to me is like a better use of my attention um, and time. And I, I'm actually, I'm really glad that like I did go through the process myself because I, I felt like I had a, but uh, you know, I, I like, I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that says like, they'll never do something. Um, and and to have tried like both routes, um, yeah, I, I, I'm very like grateful for for both experiences. But I hope to to keep you know publishing books through with publishers. Well, let's talk a bit more about how the first one came about, and you know why you decided to go that route. So you you did have a designing day job first of all. So what what was happening in your life then that prompted the you to say I don't want to do this anymore. I want to write. Yeah, so around that time, um, I so when I first started writing my first novel, um, it was actually while I was just starting up that day job. Uh, I was I had been working in advertising, and I left and I went freelance. And I met um, a couple guys who had also left their jobs at around that time, and we decided to like start this company together to do uh, to build like websites and apps and things like that. And um, and so I. In that period where I was like freelance, um, I picked up a, a journaling practice. I'd started do, doing like the the morning pages thing, where every day I tried to write like seven hundred fifty words. Um, and so uh, one day I just like sat down. And I didn't have anything to write, and the scene popped into my head, and I, I wrote that down. Uh, and the scene was like of when I had just moved to New York from Michigan. And uh, I was, I went to Ikea for the first time. Um, and like the, the one in like in Brooklyn hadn't even opened then. So it was like the Ikea in, in New Jersey. But I was walking around and I, uh, I noticed on um, some of the desks, they had these like plastic prop computers with uh, this like paper, like fake screen that was designed to look like Windows, but it clearly wasn't Windows. And I, I thought like, oh, it's like, somebody has to have that job to design those screens. And I just like, I wrote down, you know, sort of that memory. Um, and then like, it kind of just like snowballed from there where the next day I wrote down another like scene and vignette. And uh, after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, there's like a story here. There's like, you know, it's not a book yet, but it's something that's, um, that's forming and developing. And so, um, so it kind of was just this nights and weekends thing while, uh, I was starting like my design studio in New York. Had you always been interested in writing? I had always done well at writing. I, I don't think I ever realized that it was a thing you could do for a living. Like thinking back, like I definitely like entered short story competitions in like middle school. Um, there's, there's actually this like this one thing I remembered where in sixth grade, there's kind of this like school-wide like, um, like book. It was like this like competition or something where uh, like once, once a week or something in like the morning announcements, they'd have this bit of uh, 
this question about something that happened in a book that you know kids should have read by then or like the the very avid reader would have read by then and so we would like write you know write the answer on on little slips and like hand them in and uh they took like the top like 30 or some students um and then had sort of this like finals round where you sat down and like you had this like multiple choice like little you know question sheet of like 25 30 questions or something like that um and like I had like hardly read any of the books there. Um, but I like, I won that competition. And I think it's because um, I e- even, because like then I, I had a sense for like fiction and for, I had a sense for story. And so I could guess at like what the right answers were. Um, and, and yeah, it's like, like now I, it, it wasn't until after I'd been writing for like, you know, after I'd finished like these days and, after I'd spent like years writing um, See You in the Cosmos that I really remembered these things that I remember that I'd do these things as a kid, just like, cause they seem like, you know, they seem like fun. Um, and yeah. And I think there is really this process of discovery for me um, when I was getting close to doing the Kickstarter campaign for these days, I sat down for dinner with my friend and I was telling him about how much I was enjoying the the writing process and working on the book. And I said something like, you know, I'd be like willing back to willing to move back to Michigan and live out of my parents' basement to keep doing it. And I like I couldn't say that about like my day job. And he's like, Well, why why don't you just do that? And I was like, Why don't I just do that? And um and I, I think like he was sort of the one that like that was a moment of permission. Um, and I think that was also a moment where the moment where I really like thought of myself as a writer uh, and started thinking of myself as a writer. Um, and so he was like, yeah, you know, it's important that you do, you, you decide this before you launch your Kickstarter project, because you don't want it to be dependent on the success of the project. If you, if you're really like, if what you're saying is like, is really true and is, is sort of your truth that like, you'd be willing to do this, then you're going to do this like regardless of the success of that project. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think that was, that was a, a very like key moment in, in starting to think of myself as a writer. That's very wise advice that you got. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny. I think I had a very similar thing. Um, when I started working on when I realized that I was working on the novel, which happened in a very similar way. Like it was just kind of a writing exercise that I was doing because I felt very stuck. And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, there's like a thing happening here. Um, but then I also started to remember that, you know, actually that when I first fell in love with writing as a kid, like that's the type of writing I was doing. And it's so funny how we can kind of like edit these narratives of ourselves and like forget all of that. <laughs> yeah. And then just be like, oh, I'm not a person who does that. I'm a designer or yeah. whatever. Yeah, I I mean I think that's one of my I, I don't want to call it a pet peeve, but uh, I think when a lot of people um, talk about writing and they talk about um, how they talk about how they haven't had enough experiences to to like write a novel, um, and I really I don't I don't think that's like entirely true the way that like people say it. Um, I, I do think that there's this process 
um, that that writing is sort of this act of like unearthing these things that are like buried, and that like you know that when you start writing and you start working on a novel, then you you, you like you start to actually learn how to dig, and and you know I, I I'll have this experience now where like sometimes I'm writing and I'll, I'll be like like I'll be moving from like memory to memory. And I'll realize that like in this like three these three sentences that I wrote, that there are like, you know, half a dozen things that I'm drawing on. Um and I, I think, yeah, I think that's something that I really learned in the process of working on these days and like doing a novel from start to finish is I learned what it felt like to to do that unearthing. Um another analogy that I've used in the past is that the things that happen to us in our lives, they're sort of just like they happen automatically. Even if you were sitting still in a room, you know, things would be happening and, and you'd be creating these like memories and these experiences. And so it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're like, you're looking up at a night sky, right? That the stars are, are there. They're just like there. They're always there. And um, the process of like, like, I, I, I think like what we do is we start looking, we start making patterns, right? We, we find the constellations in those stars. And so you can look back on your life through, you know, with that constellation of like writing and you can like identify, okay, these are the, like the key, you know, the key stars in that. Or you can like look at through the lens of design and you could say that, oh yeah, you know, I've been designing things at, since I was a kid. And as you get deeper into any creative practice, you you sort of get good at like like recognize at, at being able to make patterns and make constellations from just like your your natural experiences enjoying wmfa please go to itunes and leave us a review I want to back up a little bit to the morning pages thing. So, cause had you been then doing um, the artist way thing, like had, had something kind of been feeling creatively unsatisfying to you? I, I think in general, when I was freelancing, um, I, it was just a period of like creative dissatisfaction is what led me to leave advertising. And so while I was freelancing and like, just trying to figure things out, you know, I, I, I went to um, just as like talk, that it was sort of this like self-helpy kind of productivity related one. That's where I heard about like the artist way and about morning pages. And so I was just like, yeah, well, like why why not try this? I so I haven't actually read the artist way, but I, I feel like I've heard about like that practice. I've heard about like the artist state practice. Um so yeah, I I really find myself um stumbling into a lot of these things and like not realizing their significance at the time. Right. There's something too about going freelance that I don't think that you can ever properly be prepared for in terms of just how much freedom it gives you and how most of the time you have zero idea what to do with all of that freedom. Yeah, you definitely. Um I and and so so that first period of freelance, um I was uh that was like nine or 10 years ago. And that was, uh, I was living alone at the time. It, and like, I'm living in my own apartment now. Um, it's like the first time I've been not, I've not had roommates since like, you know, since back then. Um, and yeah, and there's this way of like, like you really, I found that I really benefit from having routines and having that structure because otherwise, you know, I just like, 
play video games all day or like you know forget to eat dinner and um and so yeah for me it was it was just like very unintentionally like stumbling across upon these different routines and and i think yeah i think freelance it's very difficult to be freelance if you don't have like if you're unable to create that kind of structure for yourself so when you were writing then, how, uh, how did you come to the decision to do a Kickstarter campaign and self-publish and go that route instead of like submitting it to agents? So I did submit um, early drafts to agents, and I just wasn't getting much of a response. And I just took that to mean that the book wasn't very good. Um, and, and then at the same time, um, like there were a few agents who did respond, and one of the, one, the agents that I talked to was like, well, you know, like like 20 years ago or like 30 years ago and earlier than that, like people who were coming out of MFA programs, they'd like write their first two novels and put both of them in a drawer and the, their third novel would be the one that like got picked up. And, and like, you know, and I'd been like sort of talking about like self-publishing and she's like, yeah, you know, like you can do that now. And, and I, I think that there's some people see think there's a, like a stigma around it that like oh you know if you self-publish your first novel then you're not going to be taken seriously um I, I think for me it started with me realizing that uh that first book wasn't the only book that i was going to write uh and at one point while i was working on it i was like i could see myself writing 10 books and i think that also took some of the pressure off the first book it's like i don't have to cram everything in here that like, you know, anything that doesn't fit, I can like save for a future book. And so I really thought of that process of going the Kickstarter route and of like publishing it myself as a way to like learn how to both like write and publish a book. You know, it's like if you're if you're like making if you're learning pottery and you're making a clay pot, right? Like I feel like it would benefit to to do one from start to finish instead of just like you know, spending all your time on the throwing wheel and never glazing and never like, you know, never experiencing that tail end. Um, at least like, you know, that's sort of my approach to things is if I can go through it once, then I have this context and I have this, uh, this map for like where I am along, where, where I am in the process. Um, and, uh, and it was actually out of that decision to self-publish and to do the Kickstarter thing that I met my current agent. Um, my project was featured in the Kickstarter newsletter and she was subscribing to it and she came across it and, uh, and it sounded interesting to her. So she asked to read it. And so we had like a back and forth, um, while I was like, you know, self-publishing that book and, um, and we decided, yeah, to start working together and, um, to, you know, first like try to like shop around, see you in the cosmos before, you know, before I could like it. I think even for seeing the cosmos, it was always I had that self-publishing option in my back pocket. That if we couldn't find a publisher, I was happy to like do it again. Now that you've written another novel, when you look back at these days, do you feel like that one agent was right when he was like put the first two in a drawer? You know, like now that you've done one, do you think like, oh, I get where this was like my practice one or something? Definitely, yeah, and 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 I go I go back and forth about about this it's like i do in some ways i'm like kind of like sunsetting that first novel a little bit like pulling the like print on demand paperback and things like that but on another level i kind of just like wanted to be out there 
um, so people can see like, oh, you know, it's like, this was my first novel. It's like not perfect, right? And I'm, I'm a big believer in showing your work. And I, you know, I'm very open to talking about process and talking about, so when, when I did that Kickstarter project, I did, um, I didn't want to want to be that person where you like, you back their project and you don't hear from them for two years. Um, so I, I like, I made it a point to write an update about the project every week. Even if I didn't have like that much to say about the progress I made on it, it, I did find that like, it is, it's, it's, it's almost like this like partially external obligation, right? That um, we are talking about like, you know, freelancing and having the like create structure. Um, I, I feel like that was me like putting, putting myself into a situation where like, you know, other people are expecting me to do things. And, and uh, to some degree that like really benefits me um, because yeah, because I can be like, okay, you know, what, what do I have to tell um, my readers this week? Um, and that, like, that eventually became such a helpful practice. How much did you raise on Kickstarter? And how did you decide how much to ask? Yeah, so my goal was $10,000. Um, and I decided that because I did a rough estimate of, like, I looked up roughly how much it would cost me to print, like, um, hardcovers. And for, to do that, like, you know, in a, like, not print on demand, um, you have to, like, hit a certain quantity in order to, like, for that make, to make financial sense. And so I, I think the number is, like, like, I figured if I could print 300 hardcovers, um, three or 400 hardcovers, then it would be, it would justify sort of the cost. So I, I based it around that number. Um, and the, and it was also kind of based on like how many people I I could think of that I knew who would probably back the project, and I, I could think of at least like it, it, it was something like where I felt confident that I could get the first like two hundred backers, um, and so so then it'd be like okay if I can you know if I can get the first two hundred backers at like twenty five dollars a book. Um, then I'm halfway there, and and so yeah, and that is like that turned out to be what what happened. Where I got, uh, I hit that goal mostly from like my immediate, like my friends and sort of friends of friends, and um, because the book was kind of, it was about like the New York tech scene, it was about about technology, and like you know the main character was a designer. They were like people who were already naturally in my network that people I'd like friends I'd met at conferences and online and things like that. Um, it, it was like, yeah, I, I think my first, my first book was kind of the sweet spot in that like the, the kinds of people who would back it were the people who were like using Kickstarter at that time. And, and so, yeah, so I got, I got, like I reached my goal, but then I got featured in the Kickstarter newsletter and I got another bump from that. So ultimately I raised like $24,000. Yeah. And I did, uh, and there were 900, like close to a thousand backers. Um, so I ended up doing a print run of 650 hardcovers and the rest of those were like ebook backers. So was that all, that was all to production costs. That was like when you went over, it wasn't like, okay, sweet. So I'm going to keep some of this to pay my rent. 
Yeah, and and there was there was I think what it did was it, it bought me like something like a month or two of you know of like focused writing time. Um, but what also I ended up mostly just breaking even from it because they're like the international shipping costs, especially were like much higher than I'd anticipated. You know, I wasn't really doing it to like make money off of it. It was just I was just like trying to get the books out there. So. Another thing about the Kickstarter route was that while I was working on these days, um, a couple friends of mine had published their own books through Kickstarter. And like just knowing that that was knowing that they had done that and knowing that the Kickstarter option was there, like I felt like no matter what, like this book would get published in some way and would, you know, I'd be able to like put it out there in the world. And there's something really powerful about that like about knowing that and about that motivation because you know it's like maybe I wouldn't have like kept with it if I didn't know that like it was possible for me to to publish my book right and it's it's remarkable to hear you talk about it and not have you know any kind of early sense of you know like what you were saying when you're sending it to agents and oh it must just not be a good book you seem not to have too much trouble um being confident about it yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to sort of the the bravado of like my main character right? and the the naivety that goes along with it. I want to transition a little bit to talk just about your kind of writing life and writing routine. Um, so, do you want to maybe just kind of give us a a day's writing? You've yeah. you've been just writing solely for the past year or so. Is that right? Yeah. Have you still been doing some design things? Uh, I haven't taken on any design related projects. I believe since the the book was acquired by um by penguin and so yeah so my day starts okay so uh i wake up in the mornings and um so i have one of those like sunrise alarms where it simulates daylight because detroit is like such a gray city detroit is a very gray city um i think we're like number three or something like after like seattle and portland in terms of the amount of sunlight or the lack of sunlight that we get. And so I'll get up and I'll brush my teeth, go through my morning routine, and and then I'll sit and I'll try to meditate for a half hour. I'll have my coffee and um, on the good days, I won't, I'll just like get straight into journaling and I won't even like check like email or social media until like lunchtime. And yeah, I, I'll start by journaling and journaling usually eases my way into writing, into working on whatever projects. And um, I even when when I I don't have an active project, I try to like I go back to that you know that morning pages practice. I try to write 750 words every day, um, just so I'm I have the habit of sitting in front of a computer and typing. Um, and so I'll usually work until lunchtime, which is typically like like one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Afternoons are kind of for exploring and going outside because I've been cooped up in my apartment all day and seeing friends and things like that. That's usually my routine. Um, Also, like, yeah, reading in the afternoons. Um, I find that it's like I'll work anywhere from like one hour to like sometimes like four hours on writing every day. Um, And it's like uninterrupted. So I'm usually pretty spent by the end of that. And yeah, that's worked well for me so far. 
And are you starting where you left off the day before? Do you have a process of kind of revisiting the last thing? Yeah, I'll when I especially when I'm working on a new draft of something, I'll just try to like go I, I I won't edit or like outline. I'll just try to like follow the story and pick up where I left off. Um and like the you know the the weeks or sort of the like the kind of months where I'm like really on are are like when I'm doing that consistently every day. Um and you know sometimes it's like sometimes I end up writing like a couple thousand words and other times it's just like, you know, a hundred words. Um but I usually like yeah I usually try to pick up where I left off. Um, I'm actually like, I'm working on a, my next book right now. And that's something that like, like I'm not following my own, own advice because I'm, I think I'm like thinking too much about like, Oh, what I want the book to be. Whereas like I had, you know, some, I had like a rough draft that I had started working on and I should just like go back to that and like follow that thread and like, just keep going with that and see, you know, see where it leads me. Are you able to write while you're on the road as well? I am not not able to work on fiction. Um, I I find that it's usually there's something. It's like I'm already in like a different world that like to then enter another different fictional world is a little too much for me. I uh, I do try to like try to journal, um, but that doesn't always happen. I don't know how much you want to talk about the project you're working on now, but the fact that everything that you've written so far uh, centers around the way that we relate to technology, um, I wanted to talk about why that intrigues you so much. Yeah, that's so the next project is there is going to be, um, you know, a, a, an emphasis on technology as well. Um, I, I, th- I do think that like my first book these days was more directly about technology, whereas like and see you in the cosmos. I'm using it in, in a way like I am using it as a means to to tell the story, um, and I think that's that's what I'll be doing similarly with this next novel. And uh, I know I know at this point it's going to be it's going to take place here in the Detroit area, in the city and the suburbs. And I know that it's going to be contemporary. It's like present day. And I think it that goes back to what I was saying earlier about like I'm interested in things that are happening right now um and i'm interested in like uh i I would say like a lot of my writing is is like near science fiction it's not quite science fiction but it's more about like the possibilities of the tools that we already have um and like the possibilities of the the tools or like the technologies that are coming you know that are present both present today and like coming in the next couple of years um in like like the way that they shape the way they shape our lives and the way that we interact and relate to each other. Um, and that's something that I've been interested in since I was a kid. Like when I was, uh, I remember when I was like, you know, when I was younger, we'd get like the Sunday newspaper and like, I'd go, like I'd grab it from the doorstep and I'd like take out, instead of taking out like the comics or the sports section, I'd take out like the shiny, like Best Buy circulars and like circuit city. And, Cause like I would like flip through them and look at like the computer parts and like the electronics and things like that. And so I've always been like, yeah, fascinated with, um, with technology and it's such a big shaper of our lives. Like, I, I feel like at some point, you know, at some point it's going to be big enough where like, there are going to be entire political platforms that are 
like pro or anti technology or that like you know address technology and that's going to be like more mainstream because it's just like you know if you think about like ai and you think about like virtual reality the way that that's going to come into our lives is just like mind-boggling this jumps back a little bit but can you um talk a little bit more about how writing your weekly newsletter feeds into your larger writing practice it's uh, an opportunity for reflection um and now it's actually you know i've started doing this podcast about um the the making of see you in the cosmos where i'm interviewing like my editor and my agents um, my editors and my agent and the people involved in making the book and i i think that weekly newsletter um it's very i i almost kind of see it as like it's like it's usually like sunday night you know i sit down and i'm like oh i have to write this thing and so i just sit down in front of my computer for a few hours and i write it out and a lot of it ends up being like you know first drafts like it's essentially like a first draft of like whatever i'm thinking about that week and so they're not like these like you know finished perfect things and i kind of like that they're kind of rough and more like a lot of them are just more like questioning and more sort of me trying to like think through on the page like um what's happened to me that week and what i care about um i i do think that there are there have been like themes that have come up um it's like this idea of just like listening for what the what the world is telling you um and also listening for what like the story is telling you and what a book wants to be rather than like what you want it to be um those are themes that have come up again and again um and um you know sometimes it's like very uh like one of the sort of repeat recurring kind of analogies or metaphors is that like uh, i've been talking about the the manuscript as this like living and breathing like animal or even like this being that you uh you enter into relationship with um so there are kind of like you know there are parallels between like having a conversation with this with the book and with the manuscript and having a conversation with a person um and and yeah it's like it's something it's those kinds of things sometimes it's also just like oh like i got back the edited manuscript from my editors and like you know there was much more work than i thought there was going to be and so i'm like a little bit reeling from that um and i'm try i try to use it as a way um use the sunday letter as a a place where i can be like open about that and i could just like actually like own up to the fact that yeah you know it it was hard to read this feedback and but like you know this is where i've like that was a few days ago and this is where i am now i i I try not to think about who's going to read it and i try to just like make it much more of a, a personal something i do for its own sake and i do for like myself so something maybe more analogous to the journaling than the definitely the definitely yeah it, it's yeah, it, it's sort of this like in between where it is a form of journaling, but then, you know, there is an audience. So it's kind of, um, it's both like, like describing the things that happened that week and also at the end trying to make meaning. Um, whereas I, I think in my journaling, it's more just like descriptions of, of what I, what happened and 
and it's much more scattered and all over the place than anything that I'm thinking about. Um, there, there is a process of meaning making at the end, at, you know, involved in the Sunday letters. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, so you're a self-taught writer. Um, so I'm curious if there are also in your practice, how you further your writing knowledge beyond just practicing and writing. Yeah, I find that whenever I kind of hit a plateau where I feel like stuck, uh, those are the moments that I'll reach for books that are about writing and about books. I know that when I'm actively working on a manuscript, um, it really changes the way that I read. You know, I'll be reading certain books, not only for reference, but also just like more, I'll be more observant and cognizant of, you know, how how an author like starts a chapter or how, how they handle this like similar, you know, similar thing that I'm struggling with. There can be a huge benefit of like getting, of getting just enough that like you can, you can almost like misunderstand it and like misinterpret it and sort of go off on your own direction. Like for these days, you know, early on, I was like sending, like trying to like send the entire manuscript to like friends and uh, a few of them were like very, you know, uh, very gently where like, uh, I'll read like the first chapter or the first 10 pages. Um, and I got like their feedback on like the first, yeah, first chapter. And I was like, based on just that amount of feedback, I was like, oh, I know how this applies to the entire book. And, you know, maybe that wasn't their intention, but it was sort of me getting just enough where I can then like, it, it reframes the way I think about the entire book and I can kind of like extrapolate it and e- experiment with it. Um, and so, yeah, so I do think that there can be like a benefit to like not, not getting, um, you know, for me of like not, of not getting too much of like, you know, writing advice and ri- writing about writing that um, I usually find that Again, I usually find that like whenever I'm struggling and whenever I'm re- I really need it, then like I naturally end up reading something that like helps me through that. What does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Creative satisfaction. So okay, so we talked a lot about narratives and about like the stories that we have becoming reality, and uh, something that you know that I, I think I'm working with right now is that my first book has come out and now, you know, I'm like expected to write another book. And a part of me wants to be more like, definitely wants to, is like trying to be more ambitious and trying to tackle these, like, like one of the things that I'm trying to tackle in this next book that I'm working on is just my own, um, my own like Asian American identity. And that's something that I've like only recently begun to explore in, in, in the past few years. And I think that at this, that sort of that ambition is like coming from this, this very like intellectual sort of frame of mind that, that it's sort of, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to write something that's like, you know, even better and that's even more ambitious. And it's sort of like a more, a deeper subject. And then there, I think there's also the storyline that like a lot of authors like after they publish their first book, they sort of have this like sophomore like struggle where like they have trouble like putting the next book out, right? You hear you hear that a lot about like authors who like win a, an, an award and then you don't you know they don't write another book for ten years, and so like I, I I think I'd be deceiving myself if I said that I wasn't aware of these storylines. 
and aware of like my own ambitions. Um, and I think the creative satisfaction thing gets back to like the, the things that like brought me here in the first place. It gets back to remembering to listen to the book and what the book wants and remembering to just like not try to force things and to just do the things that feel natural to me and do the things that feel interesting and feel right for that moment because I don't know where it's going to take me in my life. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.